Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Keeps for continuing to support the Peter Schiff Show podcast. Keeps makes easy and affordable hair loss treatment for men. To receive your first month of treatment for free, go to keeps.com gold. All you have to lose is your hair. Well, we finally did it. The Dow Jones not only traded above, but closed above 30000 for the first time in history. We had flirted with that level for a while, but now we broke through it. The new high is 30,116 spot 51. Today's close was 30,046.24. Now the Dow Jones wasn't the only index hitting a record high today. The Russell 2000 also managed to make a new record and close in record high territory. That index up just shy of 2% at 1853 spot 53. Now the S&P and the NASDAQ, they were also higher today, uh, but they did not make record highs. Leading the NASDAQ was Tesla. Tesla did make another all-time record high, up over 7% today. And this has now vaulted Elon Musk to the number two spot. He is now the second richest man in the world. In fact, I think in the last year, he has added like $100 billion to his net worth. So what it took Jeff Bezos, I don't know, 20 years to accomplish, uh, Musk did it in in about one. Now, of course, much of this is on paper. uh, So who knows uh, you know, if he's going to be able to cash out. I mean, obviously he can't cash out anywhere near that much money. But it's interesting, CNBC keeps talking about all this wealth uh, that Musk has created. He hasn't really created that much wealth. I mean, he's created some. I mean, I'm not going to take that away from him. But he hasn't necessarily created $100 billion worth of real wealth for himself. I mean, he's created net worth, right? So to the extent that he can sell those shares... That makes him a lot wealthier. But 
That's not the same type of wealth that comes from really the plant and equipment, the physical assets, the productive capacity of of the company. If you're just going to measure the price of assets, prices don't reflect wealth. The wealth is the actual productivity of the assets themselves, not how much we decide at any moment in time we're willing to pay for those assets. So if you know stock prices are going up, but the earnings are not going up, then it's not really wealth. We just have higher prices on the same wealth. And of course, that's always happens with bubbles. I mean, bubbles inflate on paper. People have a lot of money, but there's no actual wealth associated with that. And of course, when the bubble pops, there's no wealth that's actually lost. I mean, people's net worths can be affected. Their hopes and dreams could be affected. But the actual wealth of society is not impacted simply because collectively we decide that that wealth is, has a certain price and then collectively we decide it has a different price. Now, the industrials that really led the way higher today in the Dow were basic companies. I mean, look at the energy sector, oil and gas. They were among the biggest winners. I've been talking about that on the podcast. You know, we used the decline uh, related to COVID to go from being underweight energy at Europe Pacific to being overweight energy. And I've been talking quite a bit that these stocks are still among the only stocks that are significantly below where they were pre-COVID other than the industries that maybe are directly impacted like you know airlines or the retailers. The energy sector is impacted, but I think to a less extent because I think the big oil and gas companies are going to come out stronger than ever because I think a lot of the weaker competitors are going to be cleared from the industry, meaning that when demand comes back, supply won't. And so the, the, the players that are still around are going to be able to enjoy some very significant profits uh, in, the, in the market, especially when we get the dollar falling. The dollar was down again today. Dollar index still managed to close above 92, but just barely. But there is a lot of downward pressure on the dollar, and that's going to intensify. And that is going to be very bullish for oil, which was almost up about $2 a barrel today. I think about $1.75. We closed just shy of about $45 a barrel. But this is the highest we've seen for a barrel of oil in, in several months, I think. And I think the chart uh, looks quite constructive that we're going to see even higher prices. But one person who is very much uh, focused on the Dow Jones hitting 30000 today was the President of the United States, Donald Trump, who actually called a special press conference to make the announcement. In fact, he didn't even take any questions. He called all these reporters into a room and he just announced that the Dow was at 30,000. Of course, he was bragging about it. He was taking credit for it. It was like, this is some fantastic accomplishment that now, you know, because of Donald Trump and that he's president, we now have this 30,000 Dow. And that was it. He made the announcement. He took credit for it. He bragged about it. And then he left, which I think is very funny uh, that Donald Trump would be claiming credit for the 30,000 on the Dow now. Because remember, Donald Trump said during the election, that if Biden won, the stock market was going to crash. I mean, it was going to be a crash, the likes of which we have never seen. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's an exact quote. Well, Biden won. Right? Biden is going to be sworn in as the next president of the United States, yet the stock market is making new highs. How can Donald Trump claim credit 
for those gains because the markets are forward-looking and the markets are looking forward to President Biden, yet they're rallying anyway. So how could the rally be attributable to Trump, especially if you remember what Trump said after he surprised everybody and beat Hillary Clinton? Remember, there was a huge gain in the stock market immediately following uh, the results of that election. And Donald Trump, whenever he talked about the gains that he wanted to claim credit for, he didn't start on Inauguration Day. He always went back to Election Day, and he included all of the gains in the stock market that happened immediately after he was elected, even though he wasn't president yet. And what Donald Trump always said was that the market was now factoring in President Trump and all of the good things that he was going to do, the tax cuts, the deregulation, the making America great again, fixing our trade deficits, fixing our budget deficits, renegotiating and coming up with better trade deals, right? All the promises that Trump made on the campaign trail, Donald Trump said that was why the market was rallying, that if Hillary had won, of course, the market would have tanked, but because he won, it rallied. And that rally wasn't uh, to be credited to Obama, even though Obama was still president, it was because Trump had won and the markets were being forward-looking and factoring in a Trump presidency. Well, for Trump not to be a hypocrite, he would have to now say the same thing. He would have to say these gains that have taken place since the election aren't because of me, they're because of Biden, right? Biden won and, and the markets are now excited about what Biden is going to do. But no, Donald Trump wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to claim credit for the gains that happened after he won. And he also wants to claim credit for the games that happened after he lost. In fact, Donald Trump wants to claim credit for anything good that happens uh, while he's president. And if it's bad, then obviously it's somebody else's fault. Now, the reality is Trump is not the reason that the market went up. The real reason that the market went up is the Fed. The market went up because of the Fed when Obama was president and the market continued to go up on Trump's watch because of the Fed. And in fact, I think the news that is really helping the market this week, one of the stories that helped push the market to new highs was that Janet Yellen is going to be the next Secretary of the Treasury. Now, I mentioned that Janet Yellen was in the running for that spot, and it's now official. She is Biden's pick to be the next Secretary of the Treasury. And of course, she's going to get confirmed uh, by the Senate. I mean, it's a pretty safe bet that the Senate is going to confirm her. And I think that's what the markets are focusing on. Doesn't matter whether it's uh, Trump or Biden. It's that we have the continuation of this reckless monetary policy. And obviously, Janet Yellen was an insider at the Fed. She chaired the Fed. So she's part of the architect of that policy. She's buddy-buddy, obviously, with a lot of the people at the Fed. So this strips away, you know, even a pretense of any kind of Fed independence. This will guarantee that the Fed and the Treasury Department are even working more closely then had somebody been nominated that didn't have such close ties to the Federal Reserve. So this is exactly what the market wants to hear. Janet Yellen is a super dove. Remember, how many times did Janet Yellen raise interest rates before 
Trump was elected president uh, once, <laughs> one rate hike during the entirety of uh, the Obama administration. Of course, she wasn't uh, Fed chair the whole time. Uh, she raised rates once, and then when the markets fell apart, she never raised them again until after Donald Trump was elected president. And she thought, okay, the coast is clear. Now I can, I can raise rates again. But she is a super dove. And the other thing about Janet Yellen is that I think she's completely incompetent. And I made these videos of uh, my expose of Janet Yellen. There's two videos out there, and it's Janet Yellen Exposed. And if you haven't seen these YouTube videos, go and watch them. Because the uh, media and the Obama administration sold Yellen to the public right, with a lie. It was a whole orchestrated media campaign surrounding Janet Yellen. Because obviously, first of all, she was the first female uh, Fed chairman. Now she's actually going to be the first female um, tre Treasury Secretary. Hard to believe we haven't had a female uh, Treasury Secretary yet. I mean, women are great at spending money. Uh, and they're also great at, uh, you know, running up debts, too, I think. So you think they would be perfectly qualified, you know, to be Treasury Secretary, uh, given what the job really entails at this point. But the spin that everybody put on Yellen was that she was a lone wolf at the Fed. She was the one person that was warning about the housing bubble and the problems in the credit market and the impending financial crisis, that she was a, a Cassandra, uh, but nobody believed her. Her warning cries were falling on deaf ears. But she was the one person at the Fed that really saw the problems and was warning about it, but nobody would listen. And you know what? If we just had Janet Yellen at the helm, we wouldn't have even had a financial crisis because she would have done something about it because she was so concerned and she saw stuff so far in advance. And that's why it was going to be great to now have her at the helm because she's the only one at the Fed that really knows how to steer the ship, right? That's what they were saying. And the whole thing was a bunch of BS. I proved it with my two videos. I went back to the very speeches that Janet Yellen gave in 2005 and 2006 that everybody credits for where she warned about all the problems. And I actually went over those speeches word for word and, and proved that not only didn't Janet Yellen warn about anything, she was as clueless as anybody. In fact, the only time she spoke about a housing bubble was to deny that one exists. The only time she talked about a potential problem was to say that the people who thought there was going to be a problem were wrong. Janet Yellen expected home prices to keep rising. She did not think there was a bubble. She did not even think they were overvalued. The only thing she did say about housing prices was if they surprised her by going down, that it wouldn't even be a problem. That housing was such a small part of the economy that even if housing prices unexpectedly dropped, it would be no big deal. She was saying this in 2006. So she was as clueless as anybody else, yet they tried to rebrand her as if she was a female Peter Schiff, which of course she was not. Um, so watch these videos because I'm sure they're going to have the same old spin again uh, during the confirmation hearings for Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary about her supposed warnings early and often. She supposedly warned about this pending crisis, but nobody would pay attention I was the one that was doing that. I was warning. Nobody paid attention to me. Yellen didn't have anything to say. Yellen was one of the biggest cheerleaders, and she was 
you know, at ground zero of the housing bubble, she was out in California, up in San Francisco, right? So she was right there at the very peak of the bubble. She had no idea what she was talking about. She didn't have any problems. She, she praised uh, home equity extraction. She said that was helping to make houses more valuable. The fact that people can borrow money against their house and go out and buy stuff, that was one of the reasons to justify the high home prices. I mean, that's what she spent her time doing, trying to justify the high prices to prove that the people who thought there was a housing bubble were wrong. So Janet Yellen, again, at the Treasury Secretary position, she is not qualified at all with respect to having any understanding of the economy. And none of her uh, guidance or advice is going to be helpful to creating economic growth. I mean, real economic growth that's going to improve the lives of Americans. But what we do know is she is in favor of cheap money. She wants to keep interest rates low. She wants to print money. And she's never seen an asset bubble that she could identify. In fact, another famous clueless line that Janet Yellen made just a few years ago Right? She said that we would never see another financial crisis in her lifetime, in her lifetime. Yet just a few years later, we have one worse than the one that we had in 2008, at least if you uh, judge by the government's response and how much money they had to print and how quickly the Fed's balance sheet blew up. I mean, imagine what would have happened had the Fed not done that. So not only was she wrong about there not being another uh, crisis in her lifetime, it happened very shortly after she made the statement that we would never have one again. So that's how completely clueless she is. But of course, that qualifies her to be the secretary of the debt. Right, which is really, again, what the Secretary of the Treasury is. It's really the Secretary of the Debt because the Treasury is bare. We got nothing in there but IOUs. So her real job is to manage the debt and to help America go deeper into debt by helping us sell our bonds uh, to uh, uh, lenders around the world. But that's going to be a very difficult thing to do right now because people are smartening up. Right, They don't want to buy our bonds. So the buyer is going to be the Fed. And that's why this cozy relationship is that much more dangerous because the Treasury is going to be selling its debt directly to the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve is the only one dumb enough to buy it. And it's not really about intelligence. It's because it doesn't really cost them anything because they just print money out of thin air and they use that to buy Treasury debt. You know, people, if somebody is actually going to lend money to the U.S. government that they actually have to work to earn, right, they're not going to want to do that you know, with uh, the low rates of interest and the massive amount of inflation that's baked into the pipeline. But the Federal Reserve doesn't care. So this is what the market is celebrating. It's not that Trump won or lost. They don't care that Biden's the president. They care about the Fed. And as long as that money machine keeps going, and in fact, anything that Biden does to weaken the economy just guarantees even more monetary stimulus to supposedly deal with the weakness in the economy. And what's bad for Main Street is great news for Wall Street. And that's what's being celebrated. But again, you know, it's very ironic to hear Donald Trump coming out and taking credit uh, for uh, this rally and nobody really calling him out on the hypocrisy of about what he's doing. I mean, he's not even campaigning anymore. You know, give it a rest. And I suppose if the bubble pops and the market really starts to tank sometime during the Biden administration, Trump's not going to accept responsibility for any of that, right? He's going to want to claim credit for the bubble being inflated, but not accept any responsibility as it deflates. 
Because if it's a bubble, it was bound to collapse, right? And the fact that it collapses means that the rally wasn't real, that there wasn't any substance behind it. But of course, you know, Trump's never going to deal with that reality. He's going to live in in, in this fantasy. But I'll, I'm all happy to have the collapse uh, be blamed on, on Biden and any policies that he wants to pursue. But the real uh, villain is the Federal Reserve. And it's the Federal Reserve that needs to be held accountable uh, for the fallout from the explosion of the bubbles that they inflate. Of course, I was watching CNBC's coverage of this historic day, you know, with the Dow eclipsing 30,000. And there was a lot of bullishness, a lot of optimism. But I saw several comparisons between the 2020s and the 1920s, right? The 1920s were the roaring 20s, right? This was an economic boom. The market uh, went way up. The economy was doing great. Of course, it ended with the crash in 1929 and was followed by the Great Depression. But the earlier part of the 1920s uh, was a boom, right? The economy did very well. Uh, The stock market did very well. And you had a lot of people on CNBC today talking about this and making the comparison that the 2020s, according to these guys, are going to be like the 1920s. It's going to be the roaring 20s all over again. It's going to be another economic boom. And one of the reasons that they were making the comparison is they talked about the pandemic of 1919, right, which preceded the boom in the 20s. And they compared it to the pandemic we just had now. And they're like, look, you know, when the pandemic is over, people go out, they're spending more, they're returning to normal, and we're getting a boom. And so they're saying because the 1919 pandemic gave way to the roaring 20s, the COVID pandemic that we just experienced is going to give way to another decade of roaring 20s, the 2020s. And the comparison doesn't make sense at all. I mean, just because it's the 20s doesn't mean it's the 1920s. It's not. It's the 2020s and it's night and day. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And in fact, what are the best comparisons that no one on CNBC is making because they don't understand it, is the contrast between the way the government responded, not only to the pandemic in 1919, but the end of the Second World War in 1918, because we experienced in this country a sharp contraction in 1920, went from 1920 to 1921. I mean, really a depression, if you want to look at the collapse in GDP, 
uh, and all the negative things that happened, the increase in unemployment, the statistics were very, very sharp in that downturn. And a lot of it had to do with money supply. We printed a lot of money uh, to fund the, the, the First World War. And then when the war was over, the presses stopped. And you know we had a, a boom and a bust associated with that. So the 1920s started off with a bust. They ended with a bust too. But in between those two busts, we had a boom. But what laid the foundation for the boom in the 1920s was the fact that the government responded to the initial economic downturn in 1920, that very sharp collapse in GDP and employment and economic activity. The government did the opposite of what it just did. The government actually cut government spending, which, of course, is what you're supposed to do. Of course, that's not what the Keynesians say because they don't know what they're talking about. But what you really do, if the economy is in trouble, you want to shrink government. You want to cut government spending because government spending is a burden on the economy. So when the economy is healthy and strong, then you have excess money to support government. But when the economy is weakened, government needs to get out of the way so that the economy is no longer burdened by supporting the government because government has to draw its resources from the private sector. Well, when the private sector is doing well and has extra resources, okay, so it, you know government can spend some of them. But when the economy is struggling to recover, the last thing you want to do is drain some of those resources. So what the U.S. government did in 1920 was slash government spending. And it was the reduction in the size of government that laid the foundation for the economic boom of the 1920s, right? The opposite of what we just did. We went through a big economic collapse, but instead of cutting government spending, making government less expensive and a smaller burden on the economy, we ratcheted up the size of government dramatically. We went deeper into debt. We didn't pare down debts like we did in 1920. We have so much more debt now and a much bigger government with lots more government spending than what we had uh, uh, before the COVID crisis began. And it's about to get a lot worse under Biden. We're about to have a lot more government regulation and even more government spending. So the government did the opposite in 2020 that it did in 1920. So we should also have the opposite result. The economy boomed following the big cuts in government spending of the 1920s. So the economy is going to go bust following the big increase in government spending in the 2020s. And of course, government spending was much smaller in 1920 than, than it is now. I mean, as a share of GDP, but they still cutting government, even though government wasn't big, making it even smaller was a huge positive for the economy. But we had big government going into this economic downturn and we made big government even bigger. So it's an even bigger problem. So anybody who thinks that this is going to be a repeat of the 1920s doesn't know anything about the 1920s. Only thing they know is we had a pandemic in 1919. Big deal. And both decades are 20s. Look, this decade, if you want to go to prior decades to try to figure out what the 2020s are going to be like, it's going to be like a combination of the 1930s and the 1970s. It's going to be like the 1930s as far as economic growth, right? Because we had a depression during that decade, except the growth is going to be even worse in real terms in the 2020s than it was in the 1930s. And then the other decade is the 1970s because of the inflation. So we're going to have the low growth of the 30s, only even lower, and we're going to have the high inflation of the 70s, only even higher. 
Those are the decades that are going to be combined into one uh, decade of misery, right? This is not going to be the, the booming 20s. This is going to be the busting 20s. Keeps makes easy and affordable hair loss treatment for men. Losing your hair sucks. Trust me, I know. I used to have a lot more hair when I was older uh, than I do now, but I managed to hold on to a lot of it uh, by using minoxidil. And when I was using minoxidil, I was paying a lot of money for it. And now you got Keeps. Keeps lets you keep more of your hair and more of your money. Two out of three guys will experience hair loss by the time they're 35. Luckily, thanks to today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatment that can help treat symptoms of hair loss and help you keep your hair longer. The sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll keep and the more money you'll save by, uh, by buying it. So act fast. In fact, some lucky guys even experience regrowth of hair by using Keeps. And you don't even need to go to a doctor's office. To get started, all you have to do is go to the Keeps website and you can discreetly order the product and have it delivered to your own home. Keeps offers their products at about half the cost of your local pharmacy. So you don't have to go broke to not go bald. Keeps treatments start as low as just $10 per month. So to take action and prevent your hair loss, get your first month of treatment for free by going to keeps.com slash gold. So the only thing you have to lose is your hair. That's keeps.com slash gold for your first month of treatment free. Now, while I'm talking about booms, busts, and bubbles, I might as well talk a little bit about Bitcoin because while the Dow was trading over 30,000, Bitcoin traded above 19,000. In fact, it's still above 19,000 as I am recording uh, this podcast. I think the high earlier this morning was 19,400, 19,500, somewhere in that neighborhood. Didn't quite make a new high yet. I forget exactly where the all-time record high is. It's not actually 20,000. It's 19,700 or something like that. So it never actually hit 20,000, but it got pretty close. Now, maybe it's going to hit 20,000 this time. Obviously, we're pretty damn close. So I think the odds are pretty good that we will, but it's not a sure thing. I mean, a lot of people are acting as if it's a foregone conclusion, I wouldn't count my chickens yet. It is certainly possible given all the momentum that we have, but it's not about you know making a new high. It's about sustaining that new high because Bitcoin can make a new high and then it can crash or it can crash without making a new high. But we're getting a lot of crazy talk, again, surrounding this big increase in the price of Bitcoin. Of course, a lot of it has to do with PayPal and PayPal has been a big factor in providing uh, the FOMO that is causing this big rally. And, you know, one of the things I heard people talking about with respect to PayPal is they talk about, hey, this PayPal solves a lot of the problems of Bitcoin because, you know, it's very difficult if you want to buy Bitcoin on a normal exchange. You have to go through this long procedure, you know, for KYC and anti-money laundering. You got to give them all this information and it takes a long time to get your account vetted. But if you just go to PayPal, PayPal customers can just buy Bitcoin. They don't have to do anything. They just buy it. They don't need any paperwork. So it's, it streamlines the process and it makes it real easy. Yes, because you can't do anything with your Bitcoin. You can't transact with it. You can't take that Bitcoin and transfer ownership to somebody else. The only thing you can do with Bitcoin in a PayPal account is gamble on the price. You can't do anything else, right? You can't give it to somebody else. You can't spend it. All you can do is sell it, right? So if you have a PayPal account and you put some of your PayPal money that you're planning on using to buy something, if you put that money into Bitcoin, 
All you can do is sell it when it comes time to spend the money or buy whatever you wanted. I mean, you're using your PayPal account to buy stuff. You can't buy anything until you sell your Bitcoin. And in fact, all the people who are buying Bitcoin today in their PayPal accounts, that represents Bitcoin that is going to be sold, right? Again, it's not SavePal, it's PayPal. The people who have funded their PayPal accounts are planning on using their PayPal money to buy stuff. If they temporarily park that money in Bitcoin, they're eventually going to sell it because they need to spend it. That's why the money is there. But, you know, the other thing about this that nobody seems to be talking about is the supposed big benefit of Bitcoin. And this is what everybody always told me when I would say, but, you know, you can have gold. A bank can hold gold. Uh, PayPal can hold gold and they can give you a debit card. And, you know, they can let you buy stuff using your gold. It's very easy. It's very efficient. In fact, it's cheaper to process these transactions if they're backed by gold than by Bitcoin. It's cheaper and it's more efficient. And in fact, even if merchants wanted to accept payment uh, in gold, they could because gold is, is stable enough to price products in. But if you assume that PayPal was going to have the same uh, type of situation with gold as it currently has with Bitcoin, where you just buy gold and you hold on to it. And then when you want to buy something, you sell your gold immediately out of your PayPal account and you use the proceeds uh, to buy something. PayPal could just as easily have done that with gold as done it with Bitcoin. The minute you involve a third party, which is what PayPal is, everybody said to me, well, Peter, I, you know, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to have gold custodied with a third party because then I have to trust that third party. The beauty of Bitcoin is there's no third party. Well, when you buy your Bitcoin through PayPal, that beauty is gone. You now have a third party. PayPal is the third party that's holding on to your Bitcoin. Well, if you're going to trust a third party to hold your Bitcoin, you might as well trust that same third party to hold on to your gold. Gold is a much better store of value than Bitcoin. So if the purpose of your PayPal account is to have money to buy stuff in the future, but if you're worried about uh, inflation and a loss of purchasing power, and you want to preserve that purchasing power by getting out of fiat currency and getting into something with more stable value, then you would want to use gold. There is no reason that you would want to use Bitcoin. Bitcoin has no stability at all. The only reason you would buy Bitcoin is to gamble on it. But why is PayPal encouraging their customers to use their PayPal accounts to gamble on Bitcoin? I mean, they might as well uh, encourage them to, to bet on sports, you know, to allow them to take their money and make all kinds of crazy wagers with it while they're waiting to spend it. But all this is hype designed to make people think, oh, that this is Bitcoin going mainstream. It's not. There's nothing mainstream about it at all. The fact that PayPal is letting people gamble with Bitcoin has nothing to do with whether Bitcoin can actually be used as a medium of exchange or a store of value. And one of the other things that everybody is saying now, they're pointing to gold. Gold keeps getting beaten up. You know, in fact, gold was down again today, almost $30 an ounce. In fact, during the day, it was down more than 30 at one point. But we closed just above 1800 I think we're about 1809 So we've had now a pretty big uh, correction in the price of gold. And the Bitcoin guys keep contrasting gold to Bitcoin and saying, you see, look, Bitcoin is going up, gold's going down. So Bitcoin is what people are buying when they're worried about inflation and they're worried about uh, central banks printing too much money. So Bitcoin has now replaced gold because look, people are buying Bitcoin and not gold. People are not buying Bitcoin because 
they're worried about inflation or they're worried about the debasement of fiat currencies. If people really were worried about that, I mean, serious people, institutions, if they really were worried, they would be buying gold. They would not be buying Bitcoin. The reason they're not buying gold is because they're not worried at all. Everybody is crazy happy. Everybody is speculating. This is a risk on environment. People are buying the riskiest assets they can find. That's why Bitcoin is going up. It's not going up because it's a safe haven. It's going up because it's not a safe haven. It's going up because people are gambling on everything. People are buying all kinds of risky assets. They're not buying gold. They don't want a safe haven. They want risk. Now, I think they're wrong. I think they should be looking for a safe haven. And if they were looking for a safe haven, they would not buy Bitcoin. And when they do look for a safe haven, they won't buy Bitcoin. Now, some of the stocks that are being bought uh, as a risk on make sense, like the energy stocks. You know, there are other stocks that are value, other commodity related companies, agriculture, industrial metals. Right. A lot of these inflation hedges are going to do extremely well as inflation comes roaring back, particularly in the United States and as growth returns uh, outside the United States. So there are some legitimate risk on type investments that people should buy. But when people really start to be concerned about rising inflation and the Fed being behind the curve, they're not going to be turning to Bitcoin, at least not the big money. They're going to be moving into gold. And also, similar to the way people are talking about all the wealth associated with the rising price of Tesla, people are making the same uh, points when it comes to cryptocurrencies, or Bitcoin in particular. If you look at the current market cap of all the Bitcoin, it's about $350 billion, a little more than that. In fact, if you add all the other cryptocurrencies, because there's thousands of these things. In fact, right now, I'm looking at coin market cap. There's 7,767 different cryptocurrencies. The combined market cap of all those is about $570 billion. And so I hear people talking about all this wealth that has been created uh, because of cryptocurrency. After all, all the people that own cryptocurrencies collectively, they have $570 billion worth of wealth that did not exist prior to the invention of these cryptocurrencies. None of that is actual wealth. When you create a Bitcoin, you create nothing. There is no wealth associated with, the, with that number. That's not $570 billion of wealth. Now, for the individual who owns the Bitcoin, if they sell it, they can now buy something with it. So that would represent a claim on some of the wealth that's there to the extent that they could sell, but somebody else has to buy. But the Bitcoin itself doesn't add any wealth to society. I mean, there's we don't have anything because we have Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't do anything. It doesn't have any substance. It doesn't serve any real function. We're no better off today because there's $570 billion worth of cryptocurrencies, you know, in cyberspace. Nobody is 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 more productive. Nobody's life is enhanced. Now, yes, if you own the Bitcoin and you can sell it then your gain will be somebody else's loss because somebody else has to buy it from you. And so you can take some of their wealth by by selling them your Bitcoin, but society overall is not better off. In contrast, right, let's talk about gold because everybody wants to compare Bitcoin to gold. When you mine an ounce of gold, you do create wealth because you're taking gold from the ground where it's serving no function right? Gold buried deep in the ground, right? 
you know, part of a formation or in rock, right? That gold is not delivering any value to society because nobody could use it. But if you perform the valuable service of mining that gold and extracting it and refining it and putting it in a form where it's actual gold, where it can then be used in jewelry, it can be used in dentistry, it can be used in consumer electronics, it can be used in aerospace. When you have gold above ground, right, in a, a bar, that's real wealth because that wealth can actually be used for something. So you are improving the overall wealth of the world by taking gold out of the ground where it has no purpose and no value and mining it and refining it and putting it in a form where it's accessible and actually can satisfy uh, human demands and human desires and, and make our lives better. But when somebody solves a math problem and creates a Bitcoin, nothing has changed. We don't have anything after the Bitcoin is created that we didn't have before. So that's not real wealth. It's just one big bubble. I want to finish up today's podcast, though, by talking about some of the comments I got and the feedback. And I do read uh, the comments. You know, people you know, go up on my YouTube channel. By the way, you know, I'm getting close to 400,000 subscribers. I think I'm maybe less than 5,000 away. So if you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, subscribe to it. I mean, if you're listening to this just at Shift Radio, go to my YouTube channel, Shift Report, and subscribe there. Help get me to 400,000 YouTube subscribers. By the way, too, and I never really talk about this, but if you are on YouTube, you got to make sure and rate the video. You know, give it the thumbs up. The more thumbs up I get, you know, the likes, whatever, uh, the, it helps with the algorithms. It helps more people see it. Put your comments in there. Uh, because then more people might see it. Same thing, you know, rate and review if you're listening on Shift Radio. Kind of make it a habit. As soon as, you know, you see the video, you know, give it a thumbs up, right? And then, you know, it shows that the content is appreciated and then uh, YouTube or the, the podcast uh, networks are more likely to promote it if they see the positive feedback that it's generating from the audience. But a lot of people commented on my comments about the FDA. In, specifically, I said that one of the ways Trump, if he really wanted to reduce the cost of prescription drugs, because his proposal, and I already went over why, is going to increase the cost of prescription drugs for Americans. But if he really wanted to decrease it, instead of a big government approach, he could have taken a free market approach. And that would have been to remove a lot of the regulations that artificially run up the cost of developing drugs and bringing them to market. Therefore, drug companies would not have as much of an investment that they needed to recoup uh, once they finally got something to market. And I mentioned that one of the things that they could do is remove the requirement to prove efficacy to get FDA approval. Just leave the requirement to prove that the drug is safe. Doesn't have big negative side effects. You're not going to die if you take it right? That's all they have to prove. Uh, they don't have to convince the government that it works. Let them convince the market that it works, right? Let them convince doctors that it works. So that was my idea. And there was a lot of people who said, oh my God, that's a terrible idea. I mean, that's going to result in all kinds of charlatans and all kinds of snake oil. I mean, there's going to be all these drugs on the market that don't work. And we need the government to vet all these drugs so that people don't waste their money buying drugs that don't work. And I thought this is kind of laughable that there are people that even listen to my podcast that actually have this view, 
And obviously, they don't have much of a history of the FDA. It's not like the FDA is part of the Constitution, right? The founding fathers didn't think up the FDA. The FDA didn't even come into existence until 1906. So we made it all the way through the 19th century without an FDA. How did we do that, right? I mean, who was saving Americans from all that quackery? Not only did we not have an FDA validating that drugs worked, we didn't even have an FDA telling us that they were safe, right? So we made it to 1906 with no FDA at all. And I'm not even saying going back to that, although I would like to go back to that. I'd like to completely get rid of the FDA, but hey, let's do baby steps. We don't even have to go that far. Let's just get rid of the requirement to prove efficacy. Because after all, that requirement was not even added until 1962. So between 1906 and 1962, if you had a drug and you wanted to get approved to market in the United States and the FDA had to approve it, all you had to prove was that it wasn't harmful. You did not have to prove efficacy. And we had a country in, you know, between 1906 and 1962, we had a pharmaceutical industry. Hell, penicillin was invented in there. You know, it came about, you know, around the Second World War. But when penicillin came on the market, you know, probably one of the biggest medical, you know, uh, discoveries ever, right? No one had to prove that that worked to get it on the market. It was on the market. <laughs> now, we don't need the government. We just trust the market. The idea that doctors are going to prescribe drugs with no proof that they're going to work. Obviously, if a drug company comes up with a new drug, in order to convince a doctor to prescribe it, in order to convince a, you know, a patient to want to buy it, they're going to have to have some rational basis to believe that the drug works. So they would have done some of their own testing maybe not as extensive and involved as what the government requires for approval, but they would have done something. They have to have something to base a claim that it works. And also, just because you don't have to prove that your drug works doesn't mean you can lie and pretend that it does. Look, you can't make false claims. I mean, fraud is illegal. So if you develop a product and you don't have any reasonable basis to believe that product works, and then you go out and market it and you pretend that it works, you lie, and then people rely on those misrepresentations and you know they buy your drug, I mean, you're committing a crime, right? You're, you're committing fraud. So you still have those laws. It's not just that companies want to preserve their reputation and their brand, and so they want to only come out with good products, but they also don't want to break the law. They don't want to commit fraud. So they're going to have to have a rational basis that they relied on for making claims, public claims, that the drugs that they've come up with actually are effective at curing the disease that the drugs are marketed to cure. And of course, if a company constantly puts out drugs that don't work, I mean, no one's going to trust them. Their brand is going to be worthless. I mean, if you have a good reputation in the market of coming up with drugs that work, well, then people are more likely to give those drugs a try uh, if other drugs have worked in the past. And of course, you know, the doctors are going to have to be convinced. The patients are going to want to be convinced. So I would rather put it in the hands of the free market than the government bureaucrats. And after all, just because the government approves a drug, does it actually mean it's safe? Does it actually mean it's effective? I mean, not necessarily. You know, these are just a bunch of bureaucrats. They also could be influenced by politics. They could be bribed. They could be corrupt. Maybe they're 
approving drugs that really shouldn't be approved. Or more importantly, maybe they're keeping drugs off the market that really should be on the market. I mean, I have firsthand experience with that happening. And I'll, I'll go over that situation right now. This really shows you how much harm the FDA does. You know, when you have to prove efficacy, that happens at the phase three level. I mean, there's really three trials. I mean, there's a fourth one, but that, that happens after the drug is approved. In order to get your drug approved, you do phase one studies, phase two, phase three. Phase three is the big one. And only about a third of the drugs that start phase one even make it to phase three. But phase three is the one that costs a lot of money and it takes years because that is your random double blind uh, study where you have to sign up hundreds of patients, sometimes thousands of patients. And what you have to do is you have to prove uh, two things. One, you have to prove that the drug works better than a placebo, right? So what happens is you have two groups of people. You have a group of people that are going to be given the drug and a group of people that are going to be given a placebo, right? Just a sugar pill. And both groups are sick, right? They have the same disease. Some people get the cure and some people are lied to and told they're getting the cure, which first of all, I, I always thought the whole process was unethical. I mean, if you have a drug that you think works, give it to everybody. I mean, don't don't lie to somebody. Tell them you're giving them a drug and you just give them a bunch of sugar, you know, and they just die. Maybe they would have been saved if they could have actually had the drug. Uh, but, you know, let's forget that for a second. So they have this random double blind. So the patients don't know whether they're getting the actual drug or the placebo. Because, of course, if they knew, it would defeat the whole purpose of, of a placebo. They have to think it's real because they're trying to, uh, you know, control for the psychological effects, because there is some psychology. I mean, if you think the medicine is going to work, you might actually get better just purely for psychological reasons. But the other part of the double blind is that the doctors don't know either. So the doctors don't know who's getting the placebo and who's getting the real medicine, right? So that's why it's double blind. Both, both the doctor and the patient both have no idea if they're getting a real drug or they're getting the placebo, right? And then after you do this big experiment, then you have to present your findings to the FDA and they want to compare the efficacy of the drug to the placebo to see if it's statistically different enough to warrant that the drug works. And then the other thing they want is they want your drug to be a substantial improvement over drugs that are already on the market, which makes no sense to me whatsoever that that would even be a consideration. I mean, you can't have too many drugs. I mean, to say, well, this drug doesn't work any better than these other drugs, so we're not going to approve it. That's like a bunch of nonsense, right? But that's part of the consideration. Now, the reason I'm bringing all this stuff up is that there was a drug company that went out of business quite you know, some time ago called Boston Life Science. And I know about this company because I invested a lot of money in it. I invested money in it personally, and I invested money for clients. And this goes back to the 1990s when I was investing in it. And they had a drug that they had developed called Therafectin. Right? And Therafectin was a drug to treat rheumatoid arthritis, which is the really bad kind of arthritis. And the, the beauty of this drug was that it worked without any side effects because the other drugs that were on the market, people were using steroids, they were using methotrexate, I forget what other, you know, that, and that's a chemotherapy drug, but they were using drugs uh, on rheumatoid arthritis. But the problem was there was a lot of negative side effects. So you'd take the drugs for your arthritis and then you'd have to take another drug for the side effect of that drug. This drug had no negative side effects at all. 
And I was, you know, reading statements when I was, you know, doing research on the company by people who were in the trials and they were like, had such good things to say about this drug. They loved it. It made their life so much better that now they don't have to deal with these negative side effects. And it was like a lifesaver. So I thought this was going to be a big drug. And so I put a bunch of money in it. And initially the stock went way up. I mean, I had a huge paper profit in this stock. Uh, and then phase three trials came along and the, the FDA rejected their application. And it was actually a close call. There were some people on the panel that thought it should be approved, but the majority said that there wasn't enough proof that the drug was statistically more efficacious than the placebo. And as a result of that, they denied the application. And basically that caused the company to go bankrupt because, I mean, theoretically, they could have maybe tried to do the phase three all over again, but who has the money for that? And go try to raise money in the market. You've already gone to phase three. You've got turned down. Now you're going to go back and try to raise money again to do it all over again. That was it. The company went out of business. The stock crashed. I lost a bunch of money. Now, of course, most of the money I lost was the paper profits I never took, you know, that's a you know, little warning to you Bitcoin guys, right? I mean, if you don't get out, you, know, you don't really have anything. I thought I made a lot of money in, uh, in Boston Life Science. I didn't make anything. I mean, I ran the thing up. I think I started buying it you know, below $2, like one and change, and it went up to $10. Uh, but then it crashed because the FDA turned it down. But one of the most frustrating parts about it is if you read what the FDA had wrote about it, they conceded, they mentioned that their effectin was at least as effective as the drugs that were already on the market, meaning that when the other drugs that were approved, these drugs that are now being used for arthritis, their effectin is as effective as they were, right? So they didn't do any better, I guess, relative to the placebos than uh, their effectin. But they mentioned the difference was that these other drugs had these horrible side effects and Theraflectin didn't have any. So here they have proof that there is a potential arthritis drug that is as effective as the drugs people are already using, but has no negative side effects, yet they turned it down anyway because they said, well, it didn't prove that it's more effective than the placebo, according to the majority on the committee. Not everybody. There were some people that wanted it approved. Now, it was safe. The studies showed that the drug was safe. So why not let it on the market? Who, what difference does it make? There were a lot of people who were so disappointed when they learned that they were no longer going to be able to buy this medication. They wanted it because it worked for them. Obviously, there's some people it works for. Maybe it didn't work for everybody in the study, but it worked for some people. And that means it probably would have worked for a lot more people. Why should those people be denied the right to buy a drug if they want to? Just because the government says you can't take it? Just because some bureaucrat says it doesn't work? Well, what if, what if a doctor thinks it works? What if a patient thinks it works? What about your rights as an American to, to buy the drugs that you want to buy? I mean, even if you want to buy that the government can protect you from drugs that might harm you, why do they have to protect us from drugs that have been proven will not harm us? Let us take our chances. We're adults. We can decide if we want to buy a drug. Doctors can decide if they think it's worth prescribing a drug. Now, I think personally, what I always thought happened, I think Ted Kennedy too was involved at the time. Uh, and I think he had a lot of influence in the FDA. But 
I think what happened is the big drug companies that made the drugs that their effectin would have competed with didn't want their effectin on the market. And the companies that made the drugs that dealt with the side effects of those drugs didn't want their effectin on the market. Because after all, if people started taking Therafectin and there were no side effects, then they wouldn't have to buy these other drugs that are meant to deal with the side effects of the other rheumatoid arthritis drugs. So I think what happened is these drug companies put pressure on the congressmen and senators that they have in their hip pocket to then put pressure on their friends at the FDA to turn down the approval of this drug. Now, of course, I have no proof that that's what happened, but that's what I think happened because that's how government works. That's how lobbying works. Now, I know a lot of people are think, you see, Peter, that shows you that capitalism is bad. These big evil drug companies were able to lobby government and use their influence to keep out competition. Yes, but the problem is not the drug companies buying influence. The problem is the government having the influence to sell. You got to take the power away from the government. If there was no FDA right, approving drugs based on the subjective uh, evaluation of efficacy, which is what they do, they have to review the results and they have to decide if they think they prove conclusively that the drug is effective, right? Because whether or not it's harmful, that's cut and dry. People took the drug. Did anything bad happen to them? Nothing bad happened to them. Okay, the drug is safe. Whether or not it works, there's a lot of subjectivity. And there is the room to have drugs just kept off the market because they hurt an existing drug maker who doesn't want to have to compete with this new drug. The solution to that problem is not more regulation on the free market. Just take the power away from government. If you allow any drug that is not harmful to go on the market, then it would be impossible for pharmaceutical companies to keep competition out of the market because the government would no longer have the power to keep drugs off the market. So take the power away from the government. That is the solution. And the fact that businesses can basically bribe congressmen to protecting them from competition is not the fault of capitalism. You can't blame businessmen for not wanting competition. No businessman wants competition, right? Everybody wants to be a monopoly. The only way you can get that is if you have a government to help you. So you got to take the power away from government so they can't help people stifle competition or become a monopoly. But what always happens is capitalism always takes the blame, right? For stuff that is basically inherently the problem of government. But all the public looks at is the greedy corporations that are spending all this money lobbying government and they overlook the real problem, which is the politicians that are on the take that have all this power that they can then sell to the highest bidder to maintain uh, their position. Anyway, that said, I want to wish everybody a happy uh, Thanksgiving, a COVID Thanksgiving. I know a lot of people are uh, kind of playing it uh, close to the vest this uh, Thanksgiving. The, uh, the gatherings are, are kind of small and people are not traveling as much, uh, but try to enjoy uh, your family time. I'll probably be back and do another podcast on the Friday after Thanksgiving. It's going to be a short day in the market. We have a half day, so I'll probably get that podcast out uh, in the afternoon rather than the evening. Bye for now. 